Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps. Hello, Gavin. Good evening. Also in studio, uh, we have with us today Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross, how are your New Year's resolutions going? Staying strong? Well, I was still working on the Pokemon Go one that uh, listeners would be aware is one of my uh, key goals for 2017. Well, you have well, you have a full year. You have some time left. And by phone, we've got ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Uh, New Year's resolution going well with you? Oh uh, yeah, all of them. I didn't make any. <laughs> there you go. Well, those are the easiest kinds of resolutions to keep. Exactly. I, you know, I, I, I'm going to have a very, very successful year on that. On the show today, uh, President Tsai Ing-wen is gearing up for her second international trip of her term. This time she's heading over to Central America to visit the Allies, but not without stopping over for a bit in the U.S. And as the trip approaches, speculation is running rampant as to whether or not Tsai will meet in person with U.S. President-elect Donald Trump. Gavin says no. Most people say no. But some people say maybe. Maybe. It's good enough for us, and so we're going to take it as a serious news story. Maybe it will make her trip great. It, yeah, the best ever. Yeah. The greatest the big, ever. The bigliest. She'll be winning so, so hugely. We, you know, folks, we, you won't believe it. So a lot to look forward to there. Uh, then, sticking with international relations, we uh, take a look at the recent decision to change the name of Japan's representative office in Taipei to the Japan-Taiwan Exchange Association. Does the... Inclusion of the word Taiwan signal improving ties, we discuss. Then we got some military news, some transport news, including concerns that the Alishan Forest Railway could be forced to shut down. Uh, And then for our podcast listeners, in our bonus podcast section, uh, Taiwan's favorite evil landlady is back in the news. Uh, You don't want to miss that, so do make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes for the full podcast program. But first, New Year, New Look. But same old controversies, the 40-hour work week, uh, that is the 40-hour work week that we just got thanks to amendments to the Labor Standards Act that, you know, we were sort of covering all last year as they controversied their way through many controversies. Well, that 40-hour work week is the top story this week once again uh, on the attack. This time around is that most feared of species, economists, Gavin. Economists? Was it economists? I thought it was just about everybody. Economists and industry and... I really and don't know where to begin on this story because it covers just about everybody. Anyway, let's start Well, what are economists warning about? Economists are warning that it could lead to inflation. Hmm, that sounds scary. But then the central bank governor, Peng Huainan, came out and said, nah, inflation's going to be mild this year despite the work week. Well, let's let's start out... But let's start out at the beginning. Let's start out at the beginning. Let's start out on Tuesday... Okay, mm-hmm. where labour unions rallied outside the offices of the Ministry of Labour. Now, they protested what they decided to call loopholes in the new labour laws that have allowed employers to cut leave time and overtime pay. Mm-hmm. Basically, this equates... One of the guys gave an example that was quoted in the local newspapers. This is a person that represents the Taiwan Railways Administration Union. And he equated that with basically the pay per hour. Now, under the current rules, rail network employees who finish a 12-hour shift, which finishes at 7.30 a.m. or 7.30 p.m., are required to return to work 12 hours later. So you finish at 7.30, go back to work at 7.30. The Labour Union for the Railways Administration argues that this denies its workers a full 24 hours off between shifts. Now, when equated to the new overtime pay scheme, the Taiwan Railways Labour Union chap said that such requirements mean that employees are deducting 0.6 days of rest from their employees. Oh, simple as that. Simple as pie. Simple as that. Now, we were worried this new rule would be complicated. Yeah, I know. Everyone thought it was going to be easy. Unfortunately, it wasn't, was it? From the get-go, it wasn't easy. Now, that was just the start of the week. Now, on Wednesday, the business owners, or big business owners, we'll call them, or big industry owners, the people that own most of the companies. People with money, rich people. Basically, and belong to federations of industries, like the Chinese National Federation of Industries. The bourgeoisie. Uh, 
I wasn't going to go that far to be so revolutionary, Keith. All but, right. I'll, I'll, I'll balance it out. But anyway, the, the Chinese National Federation of Industries this week came out and described the new work week laws as being aimed at hurting employees, hurting business owners, and hurting the consumer. Lose, lose, lose. Uh, uh, it wasn't that, not that bad, because they only actually used two loses. Oh, only two losers. Because the Federation described the new regulations as being lose-lose legislation mm. that will lower salaries and see rising consumer prices. Okay, let's get back to those rising consumer prices. Uh, what, is the, what is the case for that? That's what the economists were saying. That How do we get to rising consumer prices? Because inflation, because basically their companies would have to lay or stop people from working overtime or pay people that work overtime more money. So it's basically rising labour costs. Rising labour costs would push up prices across the board. Yes, Mm -hmm. there's also concern by labour groups that instead of actually paying their full-time employees the set overtime rate, companies would actually go, hang on a minute, I can hire some cheap temporary labour, pay them the rock-bottom price, which would still save me money in the long run. Mm-hmm. So basically, employees are angry that maybe this would cut, take them out of the scenario when it comes to earning overtime pay. So getting criticism from labor, getting criticism from industry. Uh, the government, meanwhile, has responded. Uh, labor Minister Guofeng Yu, he admitted last week that the rules may actually uh, raise operating costs, but he insists that uh, those costs would be offset by the increased productivity of better rested workers uh, and also uh, other other... Folks in the government are insisting that the increases in price will be modest by two, about 2%, two percent or less. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting thing, the Vice Premier Lin Shi Yao came out this week, and this is someone you don't hear of very often, the Vice Premier, eh? And he said that we well, don't hear from Big him. week for the Vice you Premier. You don't hear from him, do you? It's like the Vice Premier. Ooh, we have a Vice we Premier. We have a Vice Premier. Because, of course, Lin Chuan is the big bod there mm-hmm. who gets the news and everything. Anyway, Lin Shi Yao came out this week and said that he said that the government believes the new workweek legislation hardly affects companies that have already adopted five-day work weeks. And he said that 65% of the island's workforce and the companies that employ said workforce have already adopted the five-day work week, meaning they shouldn't be affected at all. Hmm. Okay, so the government basically saying it's not going to be as big a deal, guys, as you think it is. Chill out, everybody. Uh, Ross, is it going to be as big a deal as these guys think it is? Well, I think you you, you identified some of the key points, um, and I'm not referring to your, uh, obviously, what you learned at Berkeley about criticizing the bourgeoisie and business owners. But when you said- Let's co- get dialectical today. When you, said, when you said covering all last year this story, that, that, that really shows how- Badly, this has been managed by, uh, I wouldn't just say the government, but also the legislators who had the responsibility for for pushing this through the legislature and and making it into law. Uh, There's so much confusion about what the implications are. There's confusion about what the details of the new regime is. Uh, clearly, labor's not happy. Clearly, employers are not happy. And, And now there's, within days of the law being passed, there's immediately accusations of loopholes, or I wouldn't necessarily call those loopholes per se, but as Gavin indicated, there uh, there's the very real possibility that employers will uh, cut back hours or not give overtime. Now, ultimately, this all shows, and you two being somewhat left to center might disagree with this, all of this shows uh, an unnecessary level of intervention by the government in the marketplace. Big gaping chasms. Is that a better description rather than loopholes? Is that your dialectical analysis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but the, 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 there's a fundamental question here is what is the proper level of government intervention in the labor marketplace? Th- this seems to be getting into such fine details of what really should be relationship between labor and employers without government intervention. But we are where we are, and everybody is unhappy. So we clearly see a, a poorly managed process with a bad result. Do you have any sense, uh, just focusing specifically on those uh, purported rising costs, do you have any sense of how severe they might be? Well, there's no doubt costs will rise for labor if, if they have to pay more over time. Uh, it, it's true. Their, their costs will rise. The, the data indicates it will probably be somewhat marginal, though. Right? But they will pass it on to consumers. So that's why economists say there will be inflation, because uh, the, the – 
large companies that, that were referred to earlier in our discussion, they're not going to swallow this cost on their own, right? They're not going to uh, suffer from reduced profits. They're going to build it into the retail price that consumers like us pay. Unfortunately, there are broader factors that help keep rising costs for a lot of products here in Taiwan, uh, somewhat at a slower pace than than you know people who are overly worried uh, feel it will be. Uh, I don't think based the bowl on, of Neo Romien has increased in the last 20 years. Right, hey, so, hey, hey, inflation was at a four-year high last year. Of, mm. of how much, though? A lot, probably. No, it was 1.4%, <laughs> yeah. Well, some would say that that's, but, a, then, that's reasonable. In fact, some would say that's probably too low. But then vegetable prices, I believe, rose by 22.5%, and fruit prices were up by around 18% last year, which so is the, the sort of indicators on, the government uses. Depends yeah. on where you look. Yeah. Depends on where you look. All right, let's toss things over to uh, Donovan and the view from central Taiwan. Uh, Donovan, what are you seeing in all this? Well, I, I think in general, I mean, I, I'm a business owner, so. Um, but the thing is, I think that in most cases, uh, most small, medium enterprises will figure out, figure out a way to work around this. Um, I think that there's going to be two areas where this is going to turn into a problem. Uh, very specifically, it's going to be large, inefficient organizations that, that can't adjust. Um, you know, we're talking about like the railways and the big state-owned corporations and things like that. They'll just simply throw their hands up and say, "We have to raise our costs." Uh, and then the the at the other end of the scale, there are certain types of small, medium-sized uh, businesses. Particularly, I'm thinking things like uh, and you see that this is very specific here in Taichung. I've seen a lot of reports on this uh, to uh, things like. And this has been an ongoing problem. Uh, medical clinics, uh, nurses, uh, in particular, there's been a, something of a crisis with nurses going ongoing long before this, uh, where nurses have been working way too long hours for too, too little pay, uh, to the, and they keep quitting. There's, there's massive turnover uh, on, on that, and that has a lot to do with the, the national health insurance payouts as well. So... Um, there's certain industries, I think. I think that the the inflation worries, there will be some. I don't think it's going to be huge because I do think that most of Taiwan's economy will, will figure out a way to adapt around this. But there are certain types of businesses that I think will be impacted. Yeah, interesting you mentioned the, the medical sector there. There was a report yesterday that the National Taiwan University Hospital, which of course is one of Taipei's and Taiwan's largest, is set to reduce its outpatient services on Saturdays. And analysts are saying that this measure represents an attempt to offset the impact of the newly implemented work week rules on vacation days and the introduction of a standard 40-hour work week. Hmm. So Taida Hospital, of course, lots of people go there big hospital. Apparently the hospital said it would gradually shift outpatient appointments scheduled for Saturdays to weekdays mm. prior to implementing the planned service reduction in April. That was pretty much their only outpatient services that were available not during prime work hours, so Basically, that's a big I, shift. I mean, uh, some of other Taipei's other larger hospitals, including the Mackay Hospital, the Cathay General and the Tri-Services Hospital, have said they haven't got any plans to change their outpatient services for the time being. All right, well, we're going to have to uh, round that one out right there. Uh, just leave that criticism coming from every corner of the earth uh, for another week. I'm sure we're going to have more to talk about real, real soon. And on to news from the International Relations Front. And President Tsai rang in the new year in the jolliest way possible. Uh, Saturday morning, she issued a speech with a sternly worded message for China at a press conference attended by international media. Uh, Ross, you don't quite fit into that category of international media, but uh, you were there nonetheless. So uh, what did she say there that caught your attention? Well, most of the content actually was on domestic policy and, and you know, things like the labor law changes. But, uh, of course, she, she did refer to uh, Taiwan's external relations, uh, and that's in the context of pressure from China and uh, efforts that Taiwan will continue to make despite uh, the, the counter efforts by China to restrict Taiwan's international space. But uh, it was important enough to mention in, in, in talking about the achievements of her government in, in the first seven months of, of their tenure and going forward in 2017, it's obviously going to continue to be a priority as, as evidenced by her, her upcoming trip this week and what we all expect to be a closer relationship with the government of Donald Trump once he takes office on the 20th. 
She did. She did have a couple of words for China, though. She said that Beijing has step by step backed onto、uh, an old track to polarize pressure and even threaten and intimidate Taiwan.、Uh, not not a huge uptick in rhetoric, but definitely taking a bit、uh, more of a negative tone than we've necessarily heard before. That's right.、Uh, but 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 it is the reality, and, and she's identified it to the people of Taiwan that this is something that. Her government and the people、um, and other stakeholders in Taiwan, such as the military, which we'll talk about later in the program,、uh, will will have to deal with、uh, going forward.、Uh, clearly, there was no expectation that uh, uh, China is going to change how it is behaving towards Taiwan, and、uh, there were no specific initiatives mentioned about anything upcoming.、Uh, to look at it another way, if there was a KMT president who had been elected. Uh, last year at this time,、uh, and was giving their first、uh, end of year press conference, probably would have mentioned a few agreements with China and a few more agreements that are upcoming, and would have said how great this is.、Uh, obviously, uh, that is not、uh, part of President Tsai's、uh, agenda for 2017 with China, and she is again identified to、uh, the people of Taiwan that this is going to continue to be. Uh, a security risk,、uh, and Taiwan needs to find a way out of it. If anything, though, with the last part, you know, where Taiwan you know, needs to find strategies to counter what China is doing, you know, that that's where there weren't specifics in, in the course of President Tsai's remarks. So she identified the issue, but、uh, hasn't identified. Solutions, and to be fair, it is very difficult to find solutions to、uh, China's efforts to restrict Taiwan's international space. Mm. All right, so that was a little bit of what was going on Saturday morning, New Year's Eve. But uh, Gavin, uh, you and a lot of other folks noticed that Sunday morning, New Year's Day,、uh, didn't have much of anything going on, which is a little bit of a break with precedent. No, great headline here: President signing when opts for bans over speech at New Year's flag raising event. I guess her her voice was all hoarse from the day before. She just wanted to listen to some music. Probably she did. She just went. Apparently she went to a flag raising ceremony, basically. Then、mm-hmm. that was it, and she sang the national anthem. Or some of the national.、Anthem. Well, that's always the key issue, right? How, how vociferously, how much effort, how much enthusiasm do do DPP politicians, whether it's at the central government or local government level, legislators,、uh, do they display when they sing the national anthem of the Republic of China? Which, of course, is, is did a, she enunciate the word party when she sang? Well, that that's always the key question. I think you can、yeah. compare the singing of the national anthem by DPP lawmakers and heads of state and government officials of that of watching the English national soccer team. Team, try to sing the "God Save the Queen" before a soccer match, because not many of them are singing it because they don't know the words. Well, some of them are not British, right? That was a reference that both play for England. Oh, oh, the English show. I thought you meant during Premier no, League. No, 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 no
Uh, does this tell us anything about the course of cross-strait relations in the new year? Well, at this point, I think everybody's kind of in a wait-and-see mode. I mean, China's obviously sending that out there as a signal, uh, both to the U.S. government and to Taiwan. Both Taiwan has been making some moves, which are very interesting, which we'll get to in in a minute with the the Japanese and with Trump. Uh, I I think it's a signal to Trump that uh, China's going to be assertive. I think it's a complete waste of time on China's part and and a very expensive uh, one, I don't think it's going to do any good. I don't think Trump's going to pay any attention to it. Uh, and so essentially China is floating its boats for no effective purpose. They think it's sending a message, but I don't think anybody's really paying that much attention. Well, I'm going to have to disagree with uh, Donovan on, on both points that he mentioned. Uh, I, I don't see people as a wait-and-see uh, as being in a wait-and-see mode. Clearly, China is trying to improve its operational capabilities by uh, deploying the Liaoning ever further and doing uh, new things with uh, the capability of, of the carrier and, and specifically the aircraft that, that are on board the carrier. So uh, this breaks precedent in the sense that they have uh, new capabilities and they're testing them out. And at some point, these capabilities will, will become operational in, in, in combat situations. So uh, again, I, I don't see this as wait and see. It's, it's, it's a new development, a very significant development in China's military capability. And as far as being a waste of time, uh, the, the deployment of the Liaoning uh, in the last few weeks, and uh, as Gavin indicated, what's expected in the coming days and weeks, uh, is not necessarily a signal to the United States. Clearly, it's a signal to Taiwan, but also to other countries here in Asia. And so whether the deployment of the Liaoning is, is sending a message about Taiwan, about China's capability to Taiwan, or in the South China Sea sovereignty dispute, it's sending a signal to the uh, other claimants, such as Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, etc., the, this again, it's neither wait and see nor a waste of time from China's perspective. Uh, I, I was on a panel uh, via video conference with, with a TV show in Beijing a few days ago, where the other panelists were all retired Chinese generals or government officials, and I, I, I wouldn't say they were proud or bombastic about the deployment of the Liaoning, but they just looked at it as um, you know, it's a next step. It's, it's something China is doing to show the improvement of its military capability. So uh, it, this should certainly concern all of us um, who care about Taiwan's security, and hopefully there will be sufficient response from Taiwan. It also circumnavigated. This is, this is, like I said, this is the first open waters exercise the vessel has taken part in. And if it does pop back through the Taiwan Strait on its return back to Qingdao, it would have completely circumnavigated Taiwan. So again, this is a this would be a new precedent, and, and frankly, it'll probably be repeated uh, in, in the future. And, and it does significantly increase the risk profile for Taiwan. There was a quote actually this week's China's Global Times newspaper, which is of course a, a state another version of the People's Daily. Mm-hmm. There was a report in that that apparently there was concern that the US aircraft carrier Carl Vinsen is heading into the Western Pacific sometime in the coming days. It's going to replace the USS Ronald Reagan, apparently, which has been stationed there for a long time and going back to the States. And the Global Times had a quote that said, military experts are saying that there is a possibility that the US and China fleets could meet, escalating military tensions in the area. Well, that's always the the risk when uh, there are these kinds of deployments. The more ships on the ocean and aircraft in the air and submarines under the water, the higher the likelihood of accidents. Hmm. All right. Uh, to round out this segment, uh, Donovan, closing thoughts? Yeah. I mean, now, from a military operational point, yeah, there, you know, Russ is correct. I mean, this, this, you know, from that point, it's significant in the sense that they're, they're, they're learning their new capabilities. Uh, but you asked about on the diplomatic front. I think on the diplomatic front right now, they're sending a clear, a clear message, but I don't think that it's going to change anything. Uh, and that's what I meant by waste of time. Um, now, when they... If they start sending that that uh, carrier, if they send the carrier into South China Sea, I think that that's going to start shaking people up a little bit more. If they send it over closer to the U.S. or Hawaii or Guam, I think that you know people are going to start p- paying a lot of attention. Right now, I think the situation between Taiwan and China is is it's not 
And the reason I say it's wait and see is I think everybody's waiting to see what happens when Trump takes office. And I think what what China's trying to do by circumnavigating Taiwan is to say to Taiwan and to the U.S., don't deepen ties too much, and also to, to, to Japan. Because I think what's happening is Tsai's been working very hard. Everything's starting from back when they had the, uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead in segments here, but uh, the, uh, when she, when, you know, when she, for example, when she stayed in the, the hotel in Tokyo and Abe was there at the same time, the Japanese prime minister, you know, and did they or didn't they meet and, you know, that entertaining his kids and visiting the prefecture he's from and, uh, you know, and of course the Trump call. Um, she's clearly making deep moves to deepen ties with the U.S. and Japan, and I think this is related to that. I don't think that this is going to stop her or Japan or China or, or sorry or the U.S. Um, I think that China hopes that it, it it will, but I don't think it's going to change change any of those things. All right, and uh, we'll let that be the last point right there because we are coming up on a break. When we return, well, the international news continues. We're going to have a little stopover in Central America as well as a discussion about Taiwan-Japan ties. Then uh, the big bods are considering closing down two pillars of Taiwan transport, both the Songshan Airport and maybe the money-losing Alishan Forest Railway. That might also be on the chopping block in the years to come. Uh, Can we get Gavin to wax nostalgic about bygone eras in Taiwan travel? We'll find out when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ross Feingold, and Donovan Smith. Sticking with international relations, uh, time for another trip... This time, President Tsai is headed for Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and El Salvador in visits that will include meetings with all four heads of state, Gavin. Yes, like you said, Keith, she's going to Honduras, Nicaragua, Guatemala, and El Salvador. But of course, before she gets to those areas, she's going to be stopping in the United States. She has two transit stopovers planned on this trip, one in Houston and one in San Francisco. Now, there has been some speculation that she could hold talks with members of US President-elect Donald Trump's transition team in at least one of these cities. However, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here in Taiwan is refusing to confirm or deny such a possibility of any such meeting. Sounds like President-elect Donald Trump is also not willing to confirm or deny when he was asked about a possible meeting, uh, a New Year's Eve celebration at his Mar-a-Lago estate. Any any sentence of reporting about Donald Trump is just delicious. Anyway, uh, when he was asked about this, he replied with the noncommittal, We'll see. Did he also say, We like pina colada? Uh, that it doesn't say here, but I think we can assume. All oh, right, I think we did, can assume yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting about this trip, though, is there's been a bit of few questions about it because, it, it, of course, it comes after Sao Tome and Principe severed ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing, and in the run-up, in fact, last week there was some contretemps about whether the Nicaragua was going to be as open as it has been in the past to ROC heads of state when they visit, because, of course, apparently the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was saying that it had had trouble contacting Nicaraguan officials to arrange a meeting between Daniel Ortega and President Tsai Ing-wen. Ooh, so perhaps not getting the full diplomatic honours we've seen in the past. Of course, Tsai is travelling to Nicaragua to attend the inauguration ceremony of Ortega. Mm-hmm. So, But there was some talk about whether they would meet. But the Ministry of Foreign Affairs came out later this week and said that they, Tsai and Ortega will meet on the day she arrives in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. All right, so that kind of lays the table for what we can expect over the next week or so. Ah, but there was also oh, some interesting... Oh, f- oh was also more some, laying the table needed, all right. There was also some interesting things about this, because the, the presidential office yesterday, on Thursday, unveiled the gifts that President oh, yeah. went. I saw those pictures. ...will be presenting to the heads of state. Mm-hmm. So, there you go. You're not supposed to tell people what the gift is before you give it. That's the point of a gift. I know, but, you know, anyway, these gifts include multi-sport GPS watches by Garmin. So that these heads of state will never, uh, never lose track of where they are. Never get lost. <laughs> never get lost, yeah. A replica of a Taiwanese sculpture by Huang Du Shui called mm. Water Buffaloes. Okay. And also a hand-painted porcelain vase depicting Formosan rock macaques. 
All right, good for any entryway actually, uh, or bathroom. I hope we don't break. Yeah, <laughs> that could be that could be its own diplomatic. There'll be, there'll be some blood, snafu. There'll, there'll be some foreign affairs officer somewhere in Central America with some super glue. <laughs> Let's glue these relations back together. All right, so now that we've set the table for uh, what we can expect over the next week or so, uh, Ross, uh, what do you expect from the next week or so? Well, one thing we know from President Tsai's previous trip in June uh, to the same region is the public here in Taiwan, although they appreciate the need to maintain diplomatic, uh, you know, formal diplomatic relations with other countries, the public doesn't get really excited by this. So uh, even though Tsai had some profi- high-profile meetings when she transited the U.S., in June with uh, members of Congress. She spoke on the telephone with Bill Clinton and clearly s- said she hopes that Hillary Clinton wins the election. Uh, then met with leaders in, in Panama, um, attended the uh, Panama Canal ceremony. But no one really cared back here in Taiwan. Uh, it didn't cause the public to feel that uh, the government is doing a great job with uh, maintaining Taiwan's international space. I would expect the same thing to happen with this trip, especially as it comes so close to Lunar New Year by, by the time she gets back. Well, one way of saying that is nobody cared. Another way of saying it is Tsai tends to have a low-key style. And, you know, it seems like from their, from the perspective of the administration, no news is good news in general. Well, public public support for the government's efforts to maintain Taiwan's to maintain Taiwan's international space is crucial, right? These things cost money. You know, maintaining relations with countries like Sao Tome or the ones that are left does cost money. So the the government certainly needs to make the case why uh, this level of aid need, needs to be given to countries that frankly have bad uh, co- records on corruption or human rights. She's attending the inauguration of, of a president who has a very bad record on human rights and was not reelected in a free and fair election. So that kind of goes counter to the values that Taiwan is trying to uh, let the world know that uh, Taiwan uh, respects and values. So there, there is a bit of a contradiction there, uh, besides the obvious fact, which Gavin hinted at uh, President Ortega being a longtime communist or Marxist, or uh, we'll have to defer to Gavin on which specific school of the left the communist experts that we both are, yes, adheres to. But uh, the the expectation is that Nicaragua would be at the top of the list of one of the next countries to switch ties. So no matter how wide his smile is when he meets President Tsai, and how grateful he acts to receive these gifts that Gavin identified, President Tsai will be carrying with her. Uh, it, it's fake because we know that he's going to switch ties as soon as Beijing asks him or instructs him to do so. Mm. Uh, viva la revolution. <coughs> Sorry, the, uh, the Berkeley's coming out again. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll push that back down. <laughs> Sandinista! <laughs> anyway, uh, Donovan, let's uh, flip things back over to you. Uh, what, what does this all look like to you? I, I really don't have much to say about it. It's, you know, it's kind of routine for Taiwan to do these, kind of, you know, Taiwanese presidents to do these kind of, kind of trips. What I'm really focused on is what happens in the U.S., uh, Nicaragua, obviously, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I can tell uh, Ross is a big Salman Rushdie fan. Um, but, yeah, probably, I mean, there's a, there's a good chance that, obviously, Ortega, uh, you know, being the, being very, very, very left, obviously, in the Sandinistas, uh, they're not going to, they're, they're going to lean toward toward communist China. I mean, that's probably probably going to happen. So you don't take the uh, reports of a meeting with Trump or he, any of his advisors, you don't take that too seriously? No, that's, that's what I'm interested in. That, that I think, is what uh, I, I'm very keen to see what happens on that front. Well, I don't, I don't see what the, the excitement is over the potential of a meeting with Trump's advisors. Uh, she, we know that the government... She's done that in Taiwan already. Well, the, right, and the government of Taiwan has already been in communication with the transition team of Trump. It's very reasonable. Uh, you know, whether or not the Obama transition team in the fall of 2008 or January of 2009 in, in the weeks preceding Obama's inauguration had similar meetings with the government of Taiwan. 
kind of irrelevant at this point because we know the Trump administration is going to be looking for a closer relationship. So given the the number of politicians that the president of Taiwan meets in person or speaks to on the phone anyway during these transit visits, if President Tsai were to meet some people who, who are going to be working in the Trump government a few weeks later on January 20th, uh, it, it's really not something that should surprise anyone or be a big deal. The only significant thing, obviously, would be if President-elect Trump himself met the man with President in the hmm. But she will be being met by the new chairman of AIT, of course. But but again, that's very routine for, for the AIT officials to meet But it'll be the first President time Tsai. that the new one actually meets her in America. Hmm. And they'll meet numerous times in the future. So, again, uh, not something that uh, really deserves too much attention. And what are you talking, I, I'm what paying are you talking? a lot of attention to this one. Um, and the reason, the reason is because I, Trump is – his fundamental strategy in dealing with, with what he perceives as foes is to destabilize them. In other words, he comes out of left field and hits them where it hurts. And in China's case, the one-China policy – um, and he's taken that cage, which China sort of wrapped itself in, and he's rattling it um, because it, 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 that's a big part of uh, you know the Communist Party's legitimacy, both at home. Oh, at home, it, it's a big part of their legitimacy, and it's a weak spot internationally. And so he, you know, he, as as he rattles that cage, he's he's essentially taking putting China on notice. And that he can destabilize them internally. So how he handles, uh, you know, so what I'm, what I'm really curious to see is what he does in response to Tsai coming through the U.S. Now, the, the, the question mark in my mind is how, how seriously or how important this is to Trump uh, and, you know, and his team. So if he sends somebody, who does he send? Now, if he sends nobody, that's a, that that says something right there that maybe this is not high as high on his radars is not that it's not that high on his radar screen. If he sends, you know, say Rex Tillerson, uh, then it's obviously very high on his on his priority list, and you know, taking on China is going to be a, a big deal. So I think this, this or it could mean that they found very, oil very in Taiwan. To see what he does in response to her coming through. Or his daughter um, because if he does bags. anything or doesn't do anything, that sort of says something. I, I actually think a, a far more significant mark uh, of where Taiwan stands and, and the priorities of the Trump administration is who from Taiwan will attend his inauguration and who will they meet when they're in Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. Obviously, it's not going to be President Tsai, uh, but she, she's transiting through Houston and San Francisco so briefly. Uh, again, no surprise for officials from Trump, Trump's team to meet with her. Uh, so I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that. I, I think the inauguration delegation is a, a far more significant event for Taiwan-U.S. relations. Were you yeah, talk- that's big too. Yeah. Were you talking about your recent elections when you said they weren't free and fair? No, we were we were talking about Nicaragua. All right, we're going to round that story out right there. And moving on, in a possible sign of strengthening ties between Japan and Taiwan, Japan's representative office uh, got a little name change. Gavin. Yes, the the actual what it used to be called the Taipei Office of the Interchange Association, which was ta- Japan's de facto sort of embassy here in Taipei, mm-hmm. was renamed the Japan Taiwan Exchange Association on Tuesday of this week. And these uh, and they put up the plaque and everything. And the critical thing is that now the word Taiwan is on that plaque on the building. Yeah, apparently the head of the office, I'm going to crucify his name, but I apologise, Mikio Numata, said that the hope for closer relations was symbolised by adding Taiwan to the name of the office. Mm. There you go. But Beijing, of course, wasn't very happy. Mm -hmm. It basically said, by putting Taiwan name in the office, you're making an attempt to create two Chinas, or one China, one Taiwan. And Chinese officials also went on to describe it as a negative move by Tokyo, and one that is taking Japan a step towards recognising Taiwan as an independent country. Oh, right. So obviously uh, this is a story that comes to us uh, with a fair amount of import for ties between Japan and Taiwan. So to give us the view on those ties uh, and to help us out, we have on the phone right now Shu Ling Ko, who is a Taipei-based staff reporter for Kyoto News. Uh, Shu Ling, thanks so much for joining us. Sure. 
So I think uh, the question here is, uh, we've already seen uh, some Japanese officials come out and say that this was indeed a move to boost recognition. Uh, but uh, is this going to be a purely symbolic move, or, or are there going to be some actual concrete uh, increases boosting to ties themselves? Well, it is definitely a positive sign of closer ties between Taiwan and Japan. But will Japan take a more proactive approach in dealing with Taiwan? It is also possible, but how these dealings play out over the next three and a half years of DPP rule is anyone's guess, of course. Mm. Do you have any sense of where this decision came from uh, in the first place? Is it perhaps a response to uh, what we've been seeing from China over the last year and, and maybe a desire from Japan to hold their friends a little bit closer or something else? Well, it did not... Well, it certainly did not happen overnight. The idea was first brought up about 20 years ago when Li Denghui was president, and it took a long time and a lot of effort for both sides to get this far. Um, I think what is important here is not who initiated it, but why they wanted to do it. And there are several reasons. First is the most obvious one. They want more people to know about the semi-official organization. Um, a poll conducted by Japan's de facto embassy in Taiwan earlier last year indicated that only 14% of Taiwanese people surveyed said they knew about the Interchange Association. So it added Japan and Taiwan to the title to make it more recognizable and more relevant to its mission here. Mm. Um, but many other countries have also changed the name of, the, of their representative offices here in Taiwan um, for the same purpose. The most recent example is the British Trade and Cultural Office, which was changed to British Office, and the Australian Commerce and Industry Office was changed to the Australian Office. A more distant one is the Belgian Trade Association Taipei, which was changed to Belgian Office Taipei. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, secondly, um, Taiwan and Japan have remained a close relationship over the years. Since Taiwan and Japan severed uh, diplomatic ties in 1972, bilateral trade has grown from about one billion U.S. dollars to about 58 billion um, in 2015, and a combined tally of visits to each country has grown from 200,000 to nearly six million last year. Um, in addition to the close relationship in trade and tourism, Taiwan and Japan as societies share certain core democratic values. Also, the former colony and colonizer enjoy one of the most stable and mutually respectful relationships in the region. Various polls have showed that people of Taiwan and Japan have a high sense of affinity with each other. Hmm. And finally, um, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's friendly attitude toward Taiwan certainly plays a role. Mm. It is clear that Abe has greater affinity for President Tsai's Democratic Progressive Party than he has had with former President Ma Ying-jeou's Nationalist Party, KMT. And if you remember, when Tsai visited Japan during her presidential campaign in 2015, she was hosted by Abe's younger brother, Nobuo Kishi, who is a member of Japan's House of Counselors, when she traveled to Yamaguchi Prefecture, which is Abe's family home. Abe himself was also a key member of the former administration of Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori, which decided to issue visa to former President Lee Zhenghui in 2001. Hmm. A small gesture, perhaps, but such act of solidarity against Chinese objections is considered a turning point of Taiwan-Japan relations. Hmm. It's interesting, though. Uh, one reason that uh, you didn't mention would be uh, the whole controversy over the imports of foods from various prefectures uh, in Japan. Uh, I wonder if uh, anybody has speculated that perhaps uh, Japan is trying to improve ties and maybe encourage uh, Taiwan to uh, accept some of those imports over the objections of those here in Taiwan that are concerned, of course, about nuclear contamination. That is a very good question, because some see the name change as a trade-off over the food. Um, but think about this. If it was, it would backfire in a second, and it would never work. As a matter of fact, I think it would only make matters worse. And I would also like to point out that um, 
Taiwan has always had a good relationship with Japan over the years, as I mentioned earlier. Um, there has been any number of positive developments in the relationship of Taiwan and Japan over the years, including the fishery pact in the East China Sea, which was signed in 2013 when Ma Ying-jeou was president, and following the devastating Fukushima earthquake and tsunami in 2011, the large sum of donation from Taiwanese people show the steadfast friendship between the two countries. Mm. And former President Li Denghui, who was born during the Japanese colonial era and received his education in Japan, has maintained close ties with Japan and is a favorite with Japanese media. Mm. And also Japan remains the, the most favorite tourist destination for Taiwanese visitors, so there's no reason to think that there is a trade-off here. Uh, I, I think this is one of the most overrated stories of the week. Uh, the, the name of uh, the changing the name is so cosmetic. It, yes, it's it, it gives President Tsai's government uh, some marginal, I would call it, public relations. Uh, despite the low survey number indicating people weren't familiar with what this organization does, everybody knows it's the de facto embassy of Japan in Taiwan. So what the name is, actually, it's kind of irrelevant. And Hey, according to that polling, apparently a lot of people didn't know that. But, but you knew where to go if you needed a visa to go to Japan. You know where the building is. You know how to look it up. So, again, the name is very marginal. I think we need to focus on what are the potential substantive achievements in bilateral relations uh, in the upcoming months and years. And if we measure uh, against the substantive achievements under President Ma's government, and despite what, what Shuling said about how Prime Minister Abe feels about President Ma or, or the former nationalist government, the reality is that the former government in Taiwan signed numerous agreements covering trade, fisheries, uh, uh, visa issues, etc., with Japan. There is a large body of achievements under the, pres uh, under the previous government, and the bar is pretty high for President Tsai's government to match the, the substantive and not cosmetic things like changing a name. So, Shuling, what do you think? Uh, over the next uh, three years, maybe seven years, uh, do you think it's possible that we'll see similar types of agreement take shape under the Tsai administration? Uh, or, or, you know, is that relationship going to face some troubles, maybe even including uh, pressure from China? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the critical question is what specific initiatives Japan is prepared to take. It seems Abe wants to balance his diplomacy toward Taiwan with, la with that toward China, but that is not so easy, especially when Taiwan and China are not so friendly. Well, then that, that would indicate it will be very difficult for President Tsai's government to enter into any substantive agreements with Japan covering issues like trade or security cooperation. Very difficult. If, if Abe and his government, which I believe, are, are concerned about reaction from China and what the impact would be on uh, bilateral trade between Japan and China or Japanese investment in China, uh, then the likelihood that Abe really wants to in, enter into substantive agreements with Taiwan, uh, is, the likelihood is low, but he gives Taiwan something uh, very cosmetic, uh, something with PR value, like changing the name. And, and at least uh, President Tsai says she has, an, uh, has something, and President, uh, uh, sorry, Prime, Prime Minister Abe can say he did something for Taiwan. Uh, Shuling, closing thoughts? Okay, I'll say this. Um, analysts do not foresee a military conflict in the Taiwan Strait, but they agree that Beijing will continue to pressure President Tsai to accept the so-called 1992 consensus or one China principle. And if Beijing considers her, uh, her reassurance is insufficient and opts for a more aggressive response, President Tsai is likely to look to the United States for assistance, and Japan will be critical to supporting a U.S. Shore, uh, show of force on behalf of Taiwan. Hmm. All right, we have been speaking here to Shuling Ko of Kyoto News. Shuling, great to have you on the show. Thank you, Keith. All right, so we're going to leave that one right there and move on to our favorite beat, 
the transportation beat. Never have enough transportation stories. Here's an old story for a new year. Uh, the question is once again surfacing. Does Taipei really need its own airport? After all, we've got a pretty decent airport right over there in Taoyuan. That one is already set to expand with a new runway in just a couple of years. And the MRT link, uh, supposedly, supposedly, uh, is very soon going to make it easier to get there. So, what does Songshan Airport add to the mix? We've been asking this question for some time, debating back and forth, back and forth. But now, kind of upping the debate, Taiwan's Transportation Ministry has commissioned a study on the feasibility of getting rid of the Songshan Airport. Gavin, ooh, a study. Another flipping study. Only people who listen to the Terry Angle Show will Terry get that, one. Show yeah, yeah, that right. one, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the study was commissioned, like you said, Keith, by the Ministry of Transport, and it's being carried out by the Civil Aeronautics Administration and the Taoyuan International Airport Corporation. Obviously, the study, so officials say, focuses on technical issues, such as whether Taoyuan International Airport should be categorized as a dedicated international airport or one that accommodates both international and domestic flights. They're also looking into the impact of expanding its services of flights at the Taoyuan Airport. Obviously, transportation to and from the airport vis-à-vis the MRT line is one such service they are studying and oh yesterday thursday they actually came out and said that they hoped this is the taoyuan city mayor came out and said he hoped that the taoyuan international airport to taipei city mrt line can begin operations after the lunar new year okay so it just keeps getting nearer and nearer nearer and nearer. it, it was going to be in so march far away somehow it does every time it came close it just disappeared and moved a fraction away and it just disappeared from what's uh, what's the what's that paradox zeno's paradox where you won't you only go halfway there every single step but you never actually get there kind of feels like that sometimes anywho the upshot of all this is we are wondering whether or not this is a really a good idea i for one i mean i'm not crunching the numbers i'm not looking at can tell you and actually you know, support the increased number of riders. I'm just looking at, I, I, I think a great big old park in the middle of Taipei wouldn't be such a bad thing. But apparently, this is, these are numbers for you. Taoyuan okay. International Airport currently handles about 50 international and regional flights per hour, while Sungshan Airport handles fewer than 20 flights per hour. Mm-hmm. Some of those are regional flights. Because obviously, Sungshan Airport, you can fly to Korea, you can fly to the Philippines, you can fly to Japan, you mm-hmm. can fly to China. And you can also fly to Taidong. You can do, yeah, but I was thinking more regional rather regional. than domestic, if you see what I mean. Well, yeah. I, obviously, the, the the residents who live near the airport uh, have objected to airport noise and the risk from overflights uh, of, of their residences for many years. Of course, the uh, TransAsia crash a couple of years ago raised those uh, concerns once again. And of course, if you move to an area near the airport when there's already an airport there, you have to... Um, you know, consider why you did that if you have a problem with it. Uh, so, <laughs> well, but why that's would you, the reality. Why would you, why would you live move, close to uh, loud parades know, in Taipei? But, but, but why he, would you live close to a temple? But you can't move there and then complain about it. Right? That That's uh, illogical and expecting um, you know, government to come in and, and save you from a decision <laughs> that you shouldn't have made. So, so where, where's uh, the but, prime real estate but, but, in Taipei? But, uh, actually, well, look... Uh, the the users of the flights, whether it's uh, to destinations in China or around the region, as Gavin just discussed, uh, I, I, it's really unlikely that they would support uh, discontinuing the, the airport. It is extremely convenient for business people who use the airport for business, leisure travelers who use it to travel to those leisure destinations. And it adds to the connectivity of Taipei to the region and to China. Uh, so it, it would clearly have a negative impact on, on the ease of transport in and out of Taipei. And it is an important option for the people who use it. And uh, this is, as you said, it's been around, the, this debate's been around for a long time. In 2002, Liying Yuan ran for mayor against President Ma, the later President Ma, who was running for re-election as mayor at the time. This was one of his key issues in his campaign was that he, if elected mayor, he was going to turn Songshan Airport into a park. Well, he lost 65 to 35. So uh, I, I really would question what the public appetite is to do away with the airport. But there was that, wasn't there, of course, when that, in 2002, you were talking about the other issue that came up then was the... Obviously, Taipei needs to expand. Taipei is in a basin. There's not much places to go unless you're going to Taipei County. But Taipei could expand north 
by the airport area because there's a lot of land there, not just the airport, but the land adjacent to it, to the left if you're standing south of the airport, which of course cannot be built on because there's height restrictions on buildings at the moment in that entire area. Which is another thing that developers want to do, because developers, obviously, there was no airport there. The whole of the northern part of Taipei, south of the Jilong River, could, in fact, be developed into a housing and other things. Well, the likelihood of that becoming reality uh, is probably small. Uh, height restrictions have been altered over the years with, with advances in, in uh, air, air craft technology with landing technology at, at the airports uh, I, I really don't see that as the crux of the issue I, I think it's somewhat political uh, it, frankly it adds connectivity to China so there are some people in Taiwan who want to do away with that uh, so uh, again it, I, my concern is the loss of the connectivity option if the airport is done away with and I don't think there, there's a real possibility that it would lead to you know, epic growth in, in, in construction or housing if we do away with the airport, given the, the desire to turn it into a park. Yeah, and in fact, talking to the airport, if you want actually a nice day out, if you like aeroplanes or in a couple of hours, if you go to the by road next to the airport on your left as you stand south of the airport, it's a great view of the landing aircraft there because they're literally above your head. Well, that's an interesting point because it, it, it goes to the number of improvements that have been made for the Songshan Airport in recent years. And that, that involves a significant investment of public money. So the facilities at the airport have been upgraded over, over recent years. And clearly that was done with a view to keeping the airport, not doing it away. So if the airport's eliminated, that would mean that a colossal amount of taxpayer money was wasted on upgrading the airport. Alrighty, I, Another interesting fact oh about Songshan Airport. Oh dear. Did you know it was once used? Pilots that were landing at the old Kai Tak Airport in Hong Kong actually had to train landing at Songshan Airport because Songshan Airport is one of the most difficult airports to land in in Asia. Huh. Because of the wind shear off the mountains. The more you know. The more you know. All right, well, I'm already ODing a little bit on transport news and we still have a whole extra story to get through. So let's get to it before my attention has gone completely. Last up for the broadcast portion of the show, we have one more bit of venerable transportation infrastructure that is on the chopping block. Uh, according to reports this week, the Alishan Forest Railways could be forced to shut down after running annual losses of up to 300 million NT, Gavin, in recent years. Yes, it could be forced to shut down as early as July because the Taiwan Railways Administration, which took over operations of the line just last year, has said that frequent damage due to typhoons and mudslides often results in millions of dollars in repair costs. Oh, my. Of course, the, everyone knows, anyone who's been in Taiwan a long time, knows the Alishan Forest Railway makes the news at least three times a year when they announce, it's closed, this station's closed, that station's closed. We had a typhoon. It's closed. What does it connect? It connects Jai with Alishan. Mm. It's, oh. it's, in fact, a 71.4-kilometre railway line. It's been in operation since 1912 and was initially built to transport timber from the mountains. Uh-huh. It was a, you know, it was a working railway. So now that then, we're not freighting too much timber, I guess not well, enough people... It got, trans it got turned into a, a tourist sort of domestic obviously originally a domestic tourist site originally and of course since then the government's been it's you know it's a famous tourist place i've never done it you know but i'm not that in big into trains you know i'm one of these people <laughs> that just gets a taxi it's called me boring but that's the way it goes we're not really making the case for the poor ali shan no, railway but it, is, line. It, it, it is historical and of course we do live in taiwan where historical things are not they're few and far between they're a few and far between if you see what i mean so obviously by your English standards, anyway. Thank you. Yes, we won't talk about your country, of course, because it's all a bit new in it, really. Hey, we, uh, that that giant donut has been there since the late 1950s. It's yeah. a veritable relic. Yeah, but it is quite interesting. I mean, obviously, it is a tourist attraction, but it's not bringing in the numbers. And um, the Taiwan Railways Administration was forced to raise ticket prices last year, in fact, mm. by some 25 percent. Mm -hmm. It's obviously it's obviously the Alishan Forest Railway has obviously come into news recently since the past year because of course the lack of Chinese tourists and Chinese tourists were all taken to the Alishan Forest Railway mm. Alright, so now fewer Chinese tourists are taken to the Alishan Railway. Uh, let's get the view one more time from Central Taiwan uh, Donovan, do you care about this one? Well, I, I mean there's, there's a lot of sentimental attachment to the 
to to that train. But here, you know, just looking at the math, they're losing 300 million NT. So, you know, either they need to get a lot more people, say, for example, if you've got 300 million people to take the Ali Sun Railway, you know, they'd only have to add one NT apiece, but that's not going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, you know, a more realistic num- number of people who might, you know, ride the train, say, 300,000, that would mean that they would all have to spend 1,000 NT uh, on that trip, which seems like a lot, which would be hard to get 300,000 people to spend 1,000 NT to ride that train, I think. So they, they've got some serious math problems. So my suspicion is that they're going to they're, they're, they're gonna, they're gonna hit up the taxpayer on this one. Have you ever ridden on it? No, I never have. Well, that's well, telling. Well, you're a man about town down there, and you really are kind of a man about hey, town. I've, I've got a big motorcycle. I, I ride up Ollie's on a motorcycle on a Triumph. I'm not, I'm not going to take an old train. <laughs> so, Ross, what do you think of railways? Well, railways are, are very popular in Taiwan you know, historically as a mode of transportation, but more recently just as, as a, a fun activity. And, and there are a lot of railway trips around the island that people can take for, to view the ocean, to view mountains, uh, family outing kind of, kind of uh, option. And Alishan uh, Scenic Railway has always been a very popular one. And as you indicated more recently with, with Chinese tourists, I would expect that given what a public relations disaster it would be if the railway closed, that the government's going to have to step in and subsidize it. All right. And on that note, uh, my attention is totally spent on transport stories, so we're going to round things out right there. Boop, boop. There's a train. <laughs> Put it. Sounding off, uh, Gavin, right there. All right. So that is our last show for the broadcast, which means we are turning over to our final bonus podcast story. And today oh, we have a lovable character of Taiwan News that rears her head. We'll not say what sort of head it is, but rears her head in the news every so often. The evil landlady, Gavin. Yeah, this is Zhang Shu Ching. She was once dubbed Taiwan's most evil landlady after she got in squabbles with over 60 former tenants who were taking her to court and she was taking them to court. They claim she tried to swindle them. She denies it and has slandered them. It's a, it's a real he, she said, she's, he she's, said. She's a lovely woman. She's, she's been investigated for fraud, forgery and slander to do with renting out properties over the years. Just investigations. Uh, yeah, just investigations. She's allegedly been involved in fraud, forgery, and slander. Mm-hmm. She also cried on the television when she first got busted for this year, the, this incident. Anyway, that's when she really blew that's up. That's when she blew up because everyone thought had no sympathy for this woman whatsoever. Anyway, she decided to defraud a couple of Malaysian tourists last week. Allegedly. Uh, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Now, the Taipei District Prosecutor's Office says... That Jung Shuqing fraudulently claimed to represent luxury hotels, and these two Malaysian women booked a hotel in Taipei, which was advertised by Jung. They booked it by credit card to stay here on New Year's Eve. When they arrived, they found out that the rooms that they had advertised didn't exist. They were then taken to a budget hotel in Taipei's um, less than affluent Yonghe district, and they were charged the same rate as they had been charged for the fake luxury hotel rooms. Mm. Now, this all came to light because the chap who ran the hotel in New Taipei's Yonghe district recognised the evil landlady from the media. Ah. And he said, hey-ha, something's fishy here. What's going on? So see, watching the news has real-world benefits, boys and girls. Yep, so she's now in the big poo-poo again for ripping off Malaysians this time. Hmm, you don't want to be in the big poo-poo. That sounds awful. Uh, All right, so this is a a story that's obviously been percolating in the background for a little bit. Uh, Have you been following this one, Donovan? Uh, not not too closely, I'll admit. But then how will you know who the evil landlady is? I know, I know. She's going to get you. It's, you know, I, I think I should be following this this really closely and watching her every move. So if I see her coming, I can uh, push her into the deep poo-poo. Mm, that's, that's, ugh, okay, yeah. What an image. Uh, Ross, is uh, the evil landlady the stuff of your nightmares? Well, uh, obviously, she's a, a repeat offender, and this is her, her scam, and she's trying to rip off as many people as possible. Or she's these. just been in the wrong place at the wrong time several times in a row. Well, I believe you mentioned <laughs> 60, 60 cases where, where she's accused of, of um, 
doing a similar scam on on uh, people looking to rent accommodations. Uh, it, let's hope, though, this doesn't cause, as we've been talking about in this program, an overreaction by regulators and, and imposing additional unnecessary restrictions on um, not just hotel operators, but tour operators. And uh, a recent issue, which we've been talking a lot, is sharing economy and things like Uber. Let's hope it doesn't turn into a issue that prevents uh, websites like Airbnb from doing their thing. They just need to come up with an evil test. If you're evil, you can't rent a room. Simple yeah. as that. <laughs> and Gavin no, just failed the test. The story here. I think, you know, fundamentally, you know, as we all know, you're supposed to find the things in life that you're good at. And, uh, you know, and then that is how you find the greatness within you. And she clearly has found something she's good at. Well, she's yeah. not, actually. She? She's been investigated. <laughs> For, because <laughs> well, she's so good. She's, she's very good at getting into the media and getting into the press. Uh, so she's, you know, found something that, uh, you know, now we all know who she is. Indeed. All right. Well, boys and girls... Uh, Unfortunately, on a radio show like this, we can't show any images, but take it upon yourself to get acquainted with the evil landlady. Worth a, worth a minute or two, at least. But we will have to leave it there for today. That is it for the show. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, right about 8.15 in the p.m., you can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, a couple of other places. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined as always by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Yeah, good night. Joined also by Ross Feingold. Thank you, Ross. Good night. And by Donovan Smith. Uh, thank you, Donovan. Yeah, have a great weekend. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Taiwan This Week.